Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Rafi Farouk is a machine learning engineer, co-founder and CEO of Genie AI. He has an MSc in machine learning from UCL, where he won a computer science prize among all MSc students. Genie AI is not his first foray into tech. He previously ran another tech startup that scaled to tens of thousands of users and was a successful derivatives trader at an investment bank. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Rafi Farouk, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Really appreciate your time and really looking forward to what for me it's fair to say will be something of a voyage of discovery, I feel, given the subject matter at hand today around machine learning. But um, diving straight in, I'd read that you're a, a lifelong programmer. So I guess my first question inevitably leads to when? When do you first recall starting to take an interest in programming? Yeah, um, thanks so much for having me, Lee. I guess when I was around the ages of 10 to 12, perhaps, my my dad thought it'd be a good idea to start programming. And, you know, at that age, you don't really think too much beyond that. So um, I started, my brother started, and we made websites in a language called PHP and HTML. And the quality of those websites and the capabilities available but back then were very very basic i guess it begs why what was it what was it about from your perspective accepting that your your father was clearly a smart man and a visionary and he could see what perhaps what might be ahead <laughs> he'd obviously sensed that you might have had a flair for these things but what was the interest from your what was it the spark that interest from your perspective i think the thing that's fascinating for me about programming is the ability to create anything perhaps not anything but you know within the bounds of software because i feel that the direction society is moving we're all becoming creators and obviously you have the creator economy and coding and programming is a vehicle to be able to create and that's what i find super exciting because if there's one theme that maybe comes out in the course of my life i think it could be creating and creation and had you shown an interest as a child in in technology or in in solving problems mathematics you know lego was it all sound very stereotypical but i'm just intrigued to see where that your your father had i'd imagine spotted a a, a trait there was something there that he'd have seen i think rafi clearly might have a talent for something here we ought to try and see if we could at least unlock it where do you think that stemmed from yeah i guess I was a bit of a strange kid in that um, I didn't enjoy the usual things of kind of, you know, always going out, playing and kind of mundane stuff. Instead, I was reading the internet, reading forums. I loved science and how things get created, especially fundamental components of the world and nature like electricity, magnetism. I still have a really old book on particle physics that I would read when I was in my early teens, which I just found fascinating because it's you know all about the world and particles and space and so on. And so 
this was really my world, as well as the arts, poetry, art, and kids would think it was it was weird. But um, yeah, I just liked creativity, science, and I guess programming was one component of that. But I think as we might discover later, I tend to work in a variety of different spaces um, and try and cross-pollinate them. That's really interesting that yeah, in very simplistic terms, but you broadly stereotypical for which I can only apologize to listeners, but crudely you tend to find your kids left brain, right brain, right? So you get those, you know, the, the typically I can only draw on my own experiences, but I was the, you know, I was the, the English, the languages kid, you know, I could, okay. I could maths and science. I had an interest, but I was the, the languages kid and the English literature kid. I love to read but it was often creative, you know, it was literature. It was, it was, I suppose now it's an element of fiction or nonfiction, but it was, it was very much in that sphere. Undeniably, I had a lot of friends who were mathematics and science and, it, and, and you sort of seemed to find your tribe a little bit as a kid. But from what you're saying, you were, you had a, almost a foot in both camps, which is quite an unusual mix, if you don't mind me saying, but clearly it's been a, been an asset. Yeah, no, um, yeah, I like the the way you put it about left brain and right brain. It's definitely a distinction people make. And also English literature, awesome degree. I'd love to see how that affected your future kind of path. For my part, it's always been very weird because I never fit in, as you said, to one category or the other. On the one hand, I love the scientific mechanical aspects of things, programming. But on the other hand, uh, I was always painting and loved poetry and creating music as well. So, um, and this kind of plagued me in my later career because I think even in the workplace, people didn't know where to put me. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I do think we have a, we have a tendency, you know, I look at it through the lens of having spent my working life in, in, in the employment field, in recruitment, and we have a natural tendency to want to define people, to put people in a box and undeniably organizations work hard to break down those, those, those definitions and, and encourage a greater breadth of diversity, not only in terms of gender and ethnicity and all those other things, but, but actually in terms of experience. I think, gen, I think diversity of experience is a crucial component of, of putting a team of people together. But I do think we have a natural, broadly speaking, human tendency to want to define people as something. So my you know, crude analogy, left brain, right brain, right? so you're the one or the other. Actually, you can have elements of both, and many do. In fact, we all do have in varying degrees. But I th has that been a source of frustration for you that, that to a point you, you, people are trying to squeeze you or define you in a certain way? Yeah, it's interesting that you kind of hit on that so quickly and and you're absolutely right. I think generally speaking in the career, I, I always say the career favors specialists and social life favors generalists. Um, because, you know, if you're at the dinner table, you want to cover lots of topics, but in the workplace, you generally need people who can deliver along a certain value flow and direction and just nail that and become experts in that. And I think society doesn't help because we also promote stereotypes and boxing people up, as you said. But, you know, I remember, for example, one of my internships at an investment bank and I wanted to be in the quantitative areas. I was in global markets, trading, quantitative structuring, and I could understand and do everything really well. I, well, at least I thought, um, at, le at least to a, to a reasonable level. But they would often say, oh, have you considered sales? 
And it was just because I enjoy talking to people, but that doesn't mean I can't do the quantitative stuff. And, and most of my experience is quantitative. Um, so that's always been a bit of a difficulty and still is to this day, I think. So, so you go back to go back to childhood, you would appear to have had a really broad range of interests, which then begs the question as to, for want of a better word, who you know, who your heroes were as a child, you know, who are those inspirational figures, the people you looked up to, the posters on the wall, however you want to define it, but who were they when you were a when you were a child or or perhaps even a teenager? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I've thought about this a lot and I kind of purposely didn't pick any one or few figureheads to look up to just because I wanted to be my own person. It's the same reason that I always intermittently follow the news rather than consistently because the news frames your mind. And in the same way, I like to draw from many different sources and not idolize any one particular source. But that being said, if we wanted to look at places I drew inspiration from, it would probably be famous poets, philosophers, and I'm quite spiritual, so maybe kind of philosophers in that domain as well. Is there anyone particularly that springs to mind whose teachings that you found to have been really enlightening or that perhaps have really influenced your your thinking? So I have an obsession with really ancient spiritual books. I'm talking like before the time of Jesus. So anything from you know 5000 BC to to 0 BC, I guess. So books on topics like Raja Yoga from a chap called Swami Vivekananda. I have the book right here, actually. Yeah. To the teachings of Tahotep, which was a book written, I think, around 3000 BC. That stuff I really enjoy because if you published a book in 3000 BC, <laughs> you know, given how difficult it was to publish books back then, you really had something to say. Whereas now, you know, anyone can publish a book and there's lots of commercialized information and most books can be summarized in a paragraph anyway. So that wasn't the case the older you go back, which is why I like those periods. What I find, I, two questions in one almost there, which is never a good premise, but I, I come back to medita- Marcus Aurelius nice. and the work of the Stoics and, and meditations. So I think I've said this to, whether you agree with it or whether you don't, it clearly works for an awful lot of people, in my view, to have stood the test of time to the extent that it has. It has some validity for a significant proportion of people over a vast series of gener- over swathes of, gener- of generation after generation after generation. And the thing that strikes me about much of these teachers is they, when you actually sit down and analyze, they're so simple. And yet, I think there's a sense sometimes that we, we dismiss that simplicity. Yeah. Because we're looking for something that we feel to be, has greater depth, is more meaning. But they're so simple. Do you remember when, where that interest first stemmed? Do you, do you, do you recall a time when you first, you picked something up and thought, wow, that's, that fascinates me? Yeah, it was, um, I totally agree with you, by the way. You know, if, if you can find information and books that have stood 2,000 years of time, then it's got to be worth something, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you can't test that so easily with modern, modern books. But um for me, it started when, I guess just on this topic of spirituality, I never was a big believer in religion. And yeah, whilst 
I guess kids were kind of playing on the playground, I would think about spirituality and science and ask myself these questions, which is a really weird thing to do when you're around 10 or 11 years old. Did you feel like it was a weird thing to do? Or or was that an observation that other 10, 11 year old kids were making of you? I think that's how I look back on it through a lens. But I do specifically remember just speaking to one of my friends as we were kind of running to play football. And I was I was like, his name was Moomin. And I told him, Moomin, there's no way that religion can be right. I mean, the way they deify gods and so on. And he just told me, I can't remember exactly what he said, but effectively he was like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, let's just go play football. And so that was the memory that kind of stuck out there. But that pushed me towards these books and and holding up in the library and trying to find out as much as I could about these topics. Which is, again, the thing that strikes me with that is that I think I'm full of broad sweeping generalizations this afternoon. But if you look at the experience of childhood and in particular teenage years, we're kind of discovering and finding out about ourselves. There is a there is a natural tendency, I suppose, amongst many to want to fit in. So you want to you want to find your tribe, and you want to fit in, and you want to be like everyone else, whatever, however that manifests. And I think that's that's true of an awful. You you could apply that to most demographics, societies. There is a sense of you know, and if you if you if you're an outlier. It can be difficult. You could be a figure of fun, or, or you can be teased for it. You, it could be, and it can be quite traumatic. And then you get to a point in life where you realise actually standing out becomes an incredible asset. So I, I suppose it'd be an interesting journey in your in your own kind of your own journey, your own evolution, to have been through that process where you would appear to have acknowledged that you thought differently to many of your peers. But also, interestingly, you know, even to your point of your, even asking the question of your friend, you weren't, were you conscious enough to, that you were going to stand out? There doesn't appear to be a discomfort to what you're describing. Yeah, super interesting question. And I like the way you also put that in later life, it can be a benefit to stand out. At the time, I don't think I was so conscious to think about whether I'm standing out or not but I did feel lonely, I would say. But at the same time, and, and this is why I find it really hard to rationalize my life because I can't pretend that I was a loner. You know, I kind of was happy with the friends that I had. I had a reasonable amount of friends. I wasn't the most popular kid, but I, you know, I had a reasonable amount of friends, but I guess I just hid away uh, all my curiosity about topics like science and spirituality I just kind of hid that and did that when I went home although if someone were to ask me about it I didn't didn't hide it on that occasion it's just not annoying people with it put it that way <laughs> and when did business first start to permeate the thought processes and how yeah I guess from quite an early age um again I guess my dad was quite a big influence on us because he was a businessman in the pharmaceutical industry and you know he came to this country in in 1972 and went to university in the north of England and yeah always was an entrepreneur and creating businesses and so as teenagers myself and my two brothers we would create small businesses whether it's selling sweets at a local Christmas uh, event or 
at one point we even had a little paper currency between the three of us and we would uh, kind of barter between us and do services for each other. It was quite funny. So yeah, I think it all started from there. So you've an MSc in machine learning. Now this is going to seem like the most basic questions, but I'm intrigued. In your view, what is machine learning? How do you describe it? How do you define it? I don't think the questions are, are basic at all. So machine learning is simply a model that learns from data. So for example, if I were to have an apple and I had a model that said anything that is green and round is an apple. That's two rules that I've given the machine, green and round. So that's not machine learning because that's using rules. And in fact, if you gave it a round pair, then the model may well be wrong. It may say that's an apple. Now with machine learning, what it would do is you'd give it a thousand apples and you would tell it all these are apples, learn what are the fundamental traits that make it an apple. And then you give it a new fruit and this looks like a round pear that's green. And it will tell you that's not an apple, that's a pear. Because it's learned the intricacies from a thousand other apples. And that's beautifully put. Thank you. The first thing that strikes me is, okay, so round green apple, but an apple's not perfectly round. And an apple might be red and a little bit of yellow with some green thrown in, or it might be moldy and brown. You know, there are so many variables, but processing power, I guess, and programming allows, you, know, allows you to, to develop those variables over a period of time. And the, the, then the computer starts to develop its own learning from those variables and it, it snowballs from there. Is that, I mean, that's a really, some crude analysis I'm going into there, but that's, that's what strikes me. No, you've nailed it. The more data that's available and the more processing power, as you say, the more accurate these models are. And that's in terms of prediction power. And what's really exciting or scary, depending on your viewpoint now, is that not only are these models accurate, but they're really flexible in terms of what they can do. So it's not just prediction, but they can do machine comprehension or understanding text, speaking in terms of dialogue, and a whole range of tasks that's moving towards one big generalist AI, which they call AGI or artificial general intelligence. The thing that strikes me always is that is the integrity of data. So how do you overcome the holes in data? You know, I guess the, the machine learning is only the ability to analyze, it's only, it's only as powerful as the data you're feeding through, right? So if the data is corrupt, could you be learning the wrong message? Is that the wrong analogy to draw? Or is, how do you overcome those sorts, of, those sorts of challenges? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, many of these models are trained on effectively the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the internet's a very biased and dangerous place. So, you know, if society is, say, gender biased, the model will also be gender biased. But there are safeguards and ways to prevent that, both at the input level in terms of the data it reads and filtering that out and cleaning it, and also at the output level in terms of assessing the predictions and making sure they're unbiased and fair. So there are techniques that can be used. 
So what was the appeal from your perspective of, of going into the depth of study that an MSc would involve around this subject? Yeah, to be honest, at the time, I was doing two things. I was trading as an investment bank and I was running a tech startup. And by the way, I wasn't sleeping much. This no, was I can of... imagine. Because that was, I mean, you say <laughs> yeah. running a tech, but, but as I read, uh, I think, it, I mean, you, you were into the tens of thousands of users in this tech startup, right? So respectfully, when people talk of tech startups, there are, there's a guy in his, in his back bedroom playing around with some ideas, struggling to get those ideas off the ground. You're, you're talking tens of thousands of users. So, you know, I think with respect, you're being quite humble in describing it as a startup, I guess, means different things to different people. But you're trading also derivatives at this point for an investment bank. Is that right? Yeah. So this that's also not, you know, that's not a um, an easy job to do without, we'll put it this way, it's not fraught without its stresses and its complexities and its demands. Yeah, no, I appreciate the comments. Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. I would go into work at 6.30am um, to start trading. Uh, I worked for a Japanese bank, so we'd start working with the Japanese from 6.30. I'd finish at around 5.30 fa- fairly early because markets close at that time. And then I'd go straight to work on the tech startup because I lived with my co-founder at, at the time and also had a girlfriend, which didn't work out because I worked too much. Um, but I'd work on GiveTree, the startup, until kind of 2 a.m., sleep for two hours and then rinse and repeat, which was um, not something I'd recommend to anyone looking back. What do you think you learned from that experience? Quite a lot. But one of the major learnings was that I feel like in the past, and I'd be curious if you found this as well, Lee, but um, I feel like there's a culture, especially in London, where it's it's quite masculine and it's kind of like, oh, let's work harder. You know, don't sleep. Work till you drop. Yeah. Keep going. You know, And I realized that that is nonsense, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I had this discussion with somebody not so long ago about my first ever kind of proper job, if you like a perceived culture of work hard, play hard. What that actually meant was how much time you spent in the office in reality. Yeah. So if you were seen to be in early and, you know, I've, I've certainly worked in environments. I've, I've known people who've worked in environments where you had two jackets on your, on the back of your chair, one for, you know, if you popped out for a cigarette or a coffee or whatever your, whatever your thing was, um, you'd leave one back, one jacket on the chair so that if anyone came round of any note to say, Oh, where's Lee? Well, Oh, he's just popped out. He's popped to the gents, whatever it might be. So they would always assume because your jacket was there, you were still there. So all these things are nonsense and you're right. They come, they really boil down to machismo is the word that, that springs to mind. It's like this culture of, you know, you could sleep when you're dead, right? You know, you just work, work, work. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that is a culture that is, I mean, it's, it sounds incredibly outdated as I talk of it. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. I feel like the dial is shifting. I don't know if that's been your experience. I feel there is, that is, people are starting to see the folly of, and the damage that that can do, you know, that, that I'm of the, I'm firmly of the opinion now that sleep is a, is a superpower, but it took me a, you know, it is the, is the superpower, but it took me a long time to realize that <laughs> too long and not, you know, not without a few challenges along the way. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, I thought I was doing the kind of noble thing by not sleeping and working hard, but actually that was so immature looking back. And, you know, when I say 
that I don't say it proudly and I shouldn't be proud. You know, sleeping is awesome and super good for you. And well, I, I'm a much better person. I'm much smarter as well, having slept well. So yeah, massively pro sleep. <laughs> so you, you're trading, you're running a startup, you're not sleeping much. Was there a pivotal moment that you thought, you know what, I can't, this, I can't sustain this? And if so, what was it? Yeah, to be honest with you, I guess my family wasn't the most wealthy of families. And so that was a major reason I went into trading because I needed to pay and just help finance the family. But as soon as things got a bit better there, I knew, I, I always knew my goal was never to, to be a trader because I wanted to have more of an ethical impact in society. And, you know, plus the impact on your health. As you can imagine, I kind of had big bags on my eyes, kind of skin problems. I'd go to parties and people would kind of wonder, <laughs> look at me and think, well, who is this guy? He just looks really gaunt and didn't have the energy to be very lively. So yeah, after it wasn't so long, it was two and a half years. I knew it was time to call it a day. What do you think you gained other than the MSC? In terms of insight or experiences or however you want to define it, but what did you gain from the MSC? Maybe if I can share with you, Lee, just before that, how I left yes, the please, I've, investment of bank. Course. Because yeah. I, just because I feel like I'd, I'd like to share this with um, audiences because you know, for anyone who finds it difficult to leave a traditional system or job, because at the time, you know, I was performing fairly well, was making good money for the company. And as you probably know, I don't know if it's like this in executive search, but you, you know, you have your bonus cycle as well. Um, so there's ways the company keeps you, keeps you there for, for years. Anyway, so I told my boss that I want to leave and, you know, the boss's boss's boss took me into an office and had a long chat with me and it pretty much threatens me. He was kind of like, I mean, at first he said, oh, why are you leaving? You know, we can give you a big bonus in six months. Uh, you can buy a house, your future will be set. And he just couldn't understand that it wasn't about the money and, there was, and no amount of money would make me stay. So that's the first thing. And the second thing was just saying, things like, oh, you're not, you're not that young anymore you might not be able to come back into this industry if you leave now. So yeah, that I mean, I, I wasn't phased. I just thought it was really funny, but also quite terrible and maybe want to leave more. How old were you at this point, if you don't want me asking? I was still pretty young. I think I was 25. Yeah, I couldn't say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying yeah. to do the math. I was thinking you can't have been older than a mid, mid twenties, but the accusation yeah. was, oh yeah, you're not a young man anymore. You, you know, the, the, the door may be closed to you. That was the, the, the implication of the conversation. Yeah, it was crazy. It's nuts. Uh, crazy, yeah. How did you feel when you walked out the door? I felt that society is still really messed up and certain industries are still very backwards. But as always in my life, if I want to do something, even if it goes completely against the grain, nothing's going to stop me for better or, or worse. <laughs> so, so it was okay. It was actually quite fun to leave, if anything. <laughs> but mind you, I, I maybe I'm in retrospect, I'm trivializing it, but the thought did cross my mind that they were literally going to pay a big enough bonus that I could buy a house in London and live happily ever after. Or by walking away, because I didn't have that much money in terms of a monthly salary, 
by walking away, I was going to take on 30 grand of debt in terms of student loans and postgraduate loans to do a master's and not earn any money. And so I said no to really quite a wealthy life and being set for the rest of my life. And instead took on 30 grand of debt to do a master's with an unknown future. Hmm. (laughs) That's interesting. But I guess it says a lot, you learn a lot about yourself, about your values, about your purpose, about what drives you. And a lot of people go their whole lives never working that stuff out. You know, I think, I, I, I don't know that ever, ever there is a definitive answer to those things it, because it's a constantly evolving journey through life. But to have gotten to a point at 20, mid-20s and thought, actually, whatever my purpose might be, it isn't this, is, is in and of itself quite quite a position to find yourself, I'd suggest, in a healthy way, in a very healthy way. Yeah, it was certainly a really hard decision and, you know, forces, whether that be the industry or even my parents, obviously, were really advocating that I don't make this move. So there's lots of pressure to not make this move. But I think what I'd suggest for anyone that's listening is that I see both both sides of the coin. You know, it's actually quite a privilege to be able to say, I'm going to let go a comfortable lifestyle and follow my purpose. And awesome, like if that's a possibility that you have in your mind and you know what the purpose is or you have an inkling, sure, go for it. Like absolutely go for it. Equally, if you come from a background where, you know, maybe socioeconomically difficult, your family may not have that much money. You may have come from a country that's developing. Nothing against following a traditional career earning money to survive and good money supporting your family you know i have nothing against that either no that's clear i I think to your point it's not that there's a that one is right one is wrong or one is better one is worse other than what's right for you right so it's a uniquely individual set of circumstances and decision making process that and, and influencing factors as to the outcome of that decision exactly whichever way you decide do it consciously and go with force you know, if you're going to stick with the traditional career, embrace it, support your family, fantastic. If you're going to leave that or or try not to to worry about it, go with force, commit and uh, see what comes out on the other side. And what did come out on the other side is Genie AI. I mean, that's probably, a, it's, it's probably a little bit more complex than that, but we're, we're, let's, let's talk about Genie AI. Well, two questions in one again, never, but I'm still going to go with it. So what is Genie AI? What does Genie AI do? And, and therefore, where have the inspiration or ideas stem from? Yeah, I guess I might answer it the other way around because we, myself and my co-founder, Nitish, who's an amazing person, by the way, we met on our MSc in machine learning and we had a certain algorithm known as GANs, which are kind of g- g- generative algorithms that can generate text, but you need structured text data to learn from. So we thought, where is there lots of text data? The legal industry. So we went and we spoke to loads of law firms, you know, piloted early, early MVPs or products with them. But us being two technical people, we didn't really know the problem. And what we really discovered, which fascinated us, was that law firms have, I don't know how much you've worked with law firms, but they have all these- Very little. Yeah. So they have all these documents, templates, what they call precedents, 
And then typically, not always, but typically they tweak them and make small tweaks and then sell it for thousands and thousands of pounds. And we thought, why don't we take these documents, these templates, and make them openly accessible to everyone? And that's what really excited us and what really started Genie AI a bunch of years ago. So our mission since then has always been to open source the law. So my first, the first, this is just an instinctive reaction. My first thought is, wow, that's incredibly disruptive and therefore has the power to be hugely transformative in terms of our traditional structures and our understanding of how we engage the law or use the law. The frameworks in which the law resides, if you like, is the the phrase that springs to mind. So if I, if I have an issue with the law in whatever capacity that may arise, I need to go to a lawyer and rightly, that lawyer studied hard and has a value that you know can solve my problem for me, which is going to cost me a lot of money. And we kind of acknowledge that we need it and it's going to cost us a lot of money. What strikes me about what you're describing is, wow, that then rips up a whole, an incredibly powerful global lobby of vested interest who don't want that stuff open source, right? So it, it strikes me, this is a really... So, where I'm going with this, this is where my brain works. So I'm now thinking, right, so my whole thought process around cryptocurrency had been, right, so if you take the power of central banks and centralized institutions and governments, and you, which fundamentally of which money is an, an integral part of it, it's the lever they can pull the hardest, I would argue. It gives them the most leverage. If you put that into the hands of the man in the street, the woman in the street, the people in the street, we've got anarchy in a good way. So all of a sudden, so those vested interests run deep with deep pockets. They don't need that stuff to succeed. Now they might say they want to, and they, we might, over time, it becomes regulated and, and people start to put guardrails around it and frameworks. Once people have worked out, how can I make, how can I replace this revenue stream with this new, more lucrative revenue stream? Then it'll be like, you know, everyone will pile in and it'll be like a gold rush, an even bigger gold rush. In theory, are we looking at a similar thing here in terms of if you open source the law, the world is run by lawyers, my friend. <laughs> That's so, so how <laughs> lawyers and bankers. So, so, so how do you, that's incredibly exciting. That's my first thought. Wow. That's cool. But also fraught with all sorts of vested interest from third parties who do not want you to succeed or are, who will be fearful of the less enlightened amongst them will be fearful that you will succeed. I suspect. Is that fair? Yeah, no, really well said. I, I guess there's two answers to this. I mean, the first is that surprisingly, you know, lawyers being smart enough people, they can see this coming. And most of them actually seem to want to get on board rather than fight it. They want to see how they can change for the future, which is great. As you can imagine, there are firms that do panic when they understand what we're doing. <laughs> I think that's okay because let me put it this way. The number of solicitors in the UK has increased for almost every single year for the last 50 years. In and of itself, that's a shocking statistic, but it doesn't, for whatever reason, doesn't surprise me. Right, right. I mean, I think that's kind of astute of you, but I guess, yeah, there's just so many lawyers, right? They're always, <laughs> always, always there. But I think the reason, and this is just a guess, but I think the reason is that as there's more and more technology and society progresses, there's more and more unsolved legal problems. You know, the courts only 
solve a small amount of the total legal problems. And the more tech there is, the more unsolved problems there are. And that's actually where we need lawyers to figure out what to do with drone law or AI law, crypto and so on, environment. Where we don't really need lawyers, I would say, is the day-to-day contractual work that should be available and easy to access for small businesses, which we can automate at a fraction of the cost. Yeah. How did you get started? I mean, it was another another case of um, sleepless nights, I suppose, but for a shorter period because I'd learned learned my mistakes. But we started on a incubator called Entrepreneur First, which is a deep tech incubator. And you have a lot of kind of blockchain, AI, health tech and so on companies. And yeah, just myself and Nitish, we were in a kind of warehouse in Bermondsey and would just sit there day and night, food on the table, you know, having this, those same snacks for breakfast, lunch and dinner and just working through the day and night pretty much. Yeah, it was, it was quite fun. What did you enjoy about that early experience? I guess what's really fun is when you get to work with someone I mean, even this podcast, you know, chatting to you is super fun because we're having a deep conversation. And in the same way, when you work with someone who's really incredible, like my co-founder Nitish, and you get to really dig deep into their minds and just bring out the best in each other and go really deep into a topic with so much passion and forward momentum, that's just so enjoyable. And I try to replicate that with my current team at Genie as well. But inevitably, as you grow as a company, bonds become a bit more distant and a bit more organizational. So yeah, it's more of a team thing, I would say, rather than necessarily the business, although the business was really fun too. I think I think the challenges I've seen, I've worked with lots of founders who are looking, who are scaling businesses. One of the, the consistent themes is how do you, as you scale, and therefore the need for process and control and systems to provide the platforms for that scale. How do you how do you go down that path but not lose sight of the kind of secret sauce that culturally made you a lot of fun and made you made you special from the outset. So how do you how do you kind of put these types of corporate structures slowly but surely piecing them together and not getting so far removed from the stuff that got you excited in the first place. And that that is a that is a real challenge. And I think I've seen so many who just about every founder I've ever met intellectually understands absolutely that in order that they might scale, they're going to need at some point to let some others play with the train set. But emotionally taking that leap, is a totally different story. And it's uncomfortable, but it sounds as though from what you're saying, you know, you be lots of challenges ahead. I'm sure lots of blood, sweat and, and tears will continue to come, but it sounds like you're, uh, you're some way down the track and making some real progress. Yeah. And it's a really insightful question. And, and I'm, I'm still learning. Liam, by, by no means an expert, but um, if I can give a left field answer to this just for interest, going back to kind of science, nature, and spirituality, I like to think of it as fractals. So if, if you think of any fractal like a snowflake or romaine lettuce, you know, it starts with the smallest possible piece, and then you basically replicate that outwards into a pattern. So in the same way, I think if you can replicate that small piece pattern-wise across your organization, then you're replicating the magic as opposed to sprawling outwards and losing the initial spark. 
So what what excites you about the future for GDAI? So we're in quite an exciting position at the moment because we've just released or open sourced 1,500 legal templates available for all businesses to use for free, which is really disruptive, I believe. Hugely. And what we're doing now is the more people that use the contracts, we're gathering that information and providing people back critical data on market standards. So imagine you get your employment contracts. I know you worked in executive search. If you could go onto our platform and see the average salary across all executives in this specific industry for this size of company or the average notice period or the average equity options given, that's the kind of data that we'll be able to provide uh, very soon. Wow. So that has all sorts of, my mind is whirring because that has all sorts of really powerful connotations and use cases. So I'm interested for you, Rafi, what does success mean for you? Success means living in alignment with my with my values, which is a really weird answer, I know. <laughs> Expand on that for us. So I think the question, if you don't mind me saying, I mean, this has been filled with awesome questions, but I feel like having to achieve success, I feel like that maybe may not be the right question because it implies that you have a way to go to get somewhere. Whereas this is what I'd love to share with people which is you don't have to achieve anything you know, you're fine as you are you're incredible as you are and if anything you need to strip away things and find who you are not try to acquire more things so if i can live in alignment with what i find valuable which are things like loyalty adventure giving honesty truth then day to day i'm successful See, I've always, that's, that's fascinating. I, so I've always maintained, so success means different things to different people. And it's a, I wouldn't say it's quite, is it a unique and distinct meaning for everyone? I, I don't know. I suspect there are probably some people for whom it means something similar, but we apply oftentimes a, a, you know, a specific measurement of success, don't we? Whether it's a material measure, we can apply a number to it. It's a number of users or it's, a, it's, it's revenues or whatever. There's lots of measurements we could apply that people go, oh, that's success. That's what success is. I think you've, you've given one of the most enlightened answers I think I've ever heard to live with your value. Is, arguably, is there anything more important than that? It's an interesting cut. So what inspires you? Who or what inspires you? I think I'd like my life to be all about giving. And you know, we try to embody this at Genie. We do lots of charity work. I think we won like a gold award from the government for the amount of money we gave for charity last year um, through the Charities Trust. So really anyone who is very giving inspires me. Lately, I don't know if you're into boxing or MMA, but I, I really love <laughs> watching that stuff. And lately, there are a couple of female fighters that really inspire me. MMA or boxers? Uh, both. So yeah. Katie Taylor in boxing, yeah. if you know. Yeah. I mean, she's so humble, so quiet, and yet one of the best boxers of all time, you know, finally earning the, the paydays she deserves and not trying to sell herself by being someone she's not and being really kind of outspoken. That is really inspiring. Yeah. That, that that comfort in your own skin is of itself inspiring, I feel, that someone is that sure of themselves, that comfortable with who they are. I, From my perspective, that's to be admired, in my opinion. 
because I think it takes a lot to get there and many people never conquer it. For sure. Many people aren't even trying to, but a lot, but many don't. So, so where, where can people go to find out more? Because the, this idea, I mean, you made mention, for example, that you've open sourced, you know, that for, for businesses to access, I mean, all these sorts of things are huge implications. Where do people go to find out? People that are listening, where can they find out more about Genie AI? Yeah, if you just type in genieai.co, that's our website, or just Google Genie Legal Templates, and you can get your legals done for a fraction of the cost. Fantastic. And, I, and I've, my, my final question, if I may, what advice would you give 18-year-old Rafi Farouk? That's a deep question. You're already there. Brilliant. That's a great note on which to end <laughs> and will give people a lot to think about, myself included. Rafi, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. Likewise. It's been a great conversation. And I suspect, if you'd entertain the idea, one we should have again, because I'd be really interested. There are so many paths down which I could have gone and probably should have gone this afternoon, but I was just conscious of the time that you have at hand and you've many things to get done, but really appreciate your time. I wish you continued success in your endeavors. I think it's a fabulous proposition, a compelling proposition you've developed, which has the prospect of you know, delivering untold change and being hugely transformative. And I've no doubt you'll succeed. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. And thanks for coming on the Astrology Podcast. No, likewise, um, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, the whole experience was amazing. And I, I love your style and the way you ask the questions and they're all really insightful. So I actually appreciate your time and um, we'll continue to follow what you guys are doing. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology Podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.